0: Welcome back to GemCast. I'm here with Tim Platts-Mills, who is a leading expert and researcher in the area of pain and pain management in older adults. So welcome, Tim.
1: Thanks for having me, Christina.
0: Pain is the number one reason that people come to the emergency room, no matter what age you are. And that could be chest pain, abdominal pain, extremity pain, head pain, whatever it is, people are coming to us for pain. And in older adults, pain management presents some specific challenges, both for the over-treatment potentially as well as under-treatment. So first off, I wanted to talk about some of the potential complications of over-treatment of pain that may make us tentative when we approach pain management in this population.
1: Sure, so uh, complications and side effects from over-treatment. As in most of medicine, there's no free lunch with pain treatment. The only thing that's close to a free lunch is Tylenol. Um, Tylenol is not a very strong analgesic, but it is basically very safe. Uh, You have to be careful not to take more than three or four grams a day. But if you're under that dose, you're okay. All the other medications have significant side effects. So opioids are associated with respiratory depression and sedation. They increase risk for falls and they also can cause constipation. We see constipation about 20% of older adults who uh, are treated in the emergency department with short-term opioids. NSAIDs also have a lot of side effects. So NSAID gastric problems, which is basically gastric ulcers or bleeding gastric ulcers, account for 70,000 hospitalizations in the United States each year and 7,000 deaths. So that's that's a lot of uh, complications just from the NSAIDs. And uh, also NSAIDs can cause exacerbations of, acute, of congestive heart failure and can put people into renal failure. So there are lots of things to worry about, but I think if you're aware of those risks and you think about what the patient is like and what their risk factors are and you sort of profile patients and put them on the medications that are safest for them, then uh, you can treat pain safely in most cases.
0: Sometimes it can feel kind of like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place with this because we don't want to over-treat, but then we also don't want to under-treat. What are some of the problems with under-treating pain?
1: Yeah, so under-treating pain is also a big problem. There's pretty nice studies that have been done in recovery after hip and knee surgery showing that if you treat pain well and you associate that pain treatment with physical therapy, then patients recover quicker. So we kind of know from injury, from that sort of injury model of, of knee and hip surgery that people who get treated, if their pain is treated well, they will do better. And we also know that people with untreated pain, so chronic sort of severe pain that, that is difficult to manage in, in many cases, that that's associated with reduced lifespan. So you could even say chronic severe pain kills you. And the concept that is used, the term that's used sometimes to describe that problem of chronic severe pain is allostatic load, allo meaning other and static meaning constant. So there's sort of this constant other stress on your body. And you can imagine, you know, having a pebble in your shoe and walking for 10 miles, that that's sort of this other stressor is an external stressor and that after a little while that will break you. And similarly, chronic pain will uh, make it hard for people to smile and enjoy themselves. It'll interrupt relationships. It can really change who they are. You know, for people who are young and healthy and for whatever reason don't, you know, fortunately don't have chronic pain, you can sort of imagine walking around all, all the time with a 60-pound backpack, and that's not even really half as bad as chronic severe pain. But that's, a, that's sort of a sense of the problem of allostatic load in, in the case of chronic severe pain.
0: It always amazes me how common chronic pain is in the elderly population. If you look at the overall U.S. population, about 20% of people have chronic pain. And then in the elderly, that's actually 25 to 50%. And in patients who are nursing home dwellers, it goes up to around 45 to 80%. So a huge proportion of the elderly population has chronic pain. And as you said, that allostatic load eventually wears them down or can make it hard for them to do their activities of daily living or the things that they enjoy. So it is important to treat this and to walk that fine line between over and under treatment. So let's talk specifically now about acute pain management in the ED. Say somebody comes in with an acute pain, like abdominal pain of unknown etiology, what are some good options to treat their pain in terms of agents and what doses would you use?
1: As in younger patients, for a case of acute abdominal pain, you're going to give a systemic medication. Probably the most reasonable choice is an opioid. NSAIDs are generally not used for abdominal pain unless you're pretty sure it's not. Gastritis-type pain, and even then, you're probably not going to give an IV NSAID like Toradol because of the concerns about acute kidney problems in older adults. So opioids are a good choice. Morphine is a reasonable choice. The usual dose for a younger adult is 0.1 mg per kg, which let's say they're a 160-pound patient or 170-pound patient. That might be like an 8-milligram dose. If you have a younger older adult, so somebody maybe 65 to 75 who's in good health and is not particularly small, I think you can give them 8 milligrams of morphine if they're in a lot of pain. For older older adults or particularly frail older adults or small older adults, so, quote, little old lady from the nursing home who's 85 years old and weighs, you know, 90 pounds, I would not give her adomorphine. You should start with a lower dose. You might start with just two milligrams or four milligrams. And then I would just add, because of the risk of sedation and respiratory depression, I think most older adults who you're treating with IV opioids should be on a cardiac monitor. IV Tylenol is something that's gotten some additional sort of interest recently. I think it's a reasonable option. It is safe. It does have good uh, analgesia properties, and so that's an option. It's a little more expensive than oral Tylenol. In most hospitals, costs pennies. A gram of IV Tylenol in our hospital, I believe, costs sixty or sixty-five dollars. So it's a little more expensive, but it's possible that that might be an appropriate medication option.
0: As you mentioned, for acute pain, morphine or one of the other opioids is one of our classic go-to medications. There are a lot of other options though, depending on the specific injury pattern or pain pattern, things like topical treatments or nerve blocks. What are some things that you've used that work well in older adults?
1: Two treatments that we've had some success with in the ED are lidocaine patches and then regional anesthesia. So the the lidocaine patch basically doesn't have a lot of side effects and you can put it directly on the skin and they stay on for 12 hours, then they come off but then they can be reapplied the next day. It was initially sort of used as, and described for a topical nerve pain like postherpetic neuralgia, but it's also been studied in patients with low back pain and it seems to be pretty effective. And obviously that's not something that needs, that uh, doesn't interact with systemic medications, so you could give somebody some Tylenol plus the lidocaine patch, or you could give somebody some opioid plus the Tylenol, plus the lidocaine patch. So I think a lidocaine patch is a nice option in the ED and they can go home with that. The other thing is that has gotten a lot of interest uh, and is being used broadly now is femoral nerve blocks for hip fractures or other types of regional anesthesia, although that's femoral nerve block would probably be the most common. I think it's a good option. My practice is to give the patient an initial dose of opioids, of an opioid, and if they are still in a lot of pain and requesting additional treatment after getting an initial dose of opioid, then I will go ahead and give them do the nerve block, and that's usually a mixture of lidocaine and marcaine, and you can give up to about 20 cc's. The thing that physicians should be aware of is that if you inject that into the vein or artery, it will quickly find its way to the heart, and those medications are very cardiotoxic, and you can cause cardiac arrest. People who do regional anesthesia, anesthesiologists, will carry with them IV lipid. And so it's probably reasonable to have access to IV lipid in the emergency department if you're doing these routinely. The other thing is you want to do these under ultrasound guidance and you want to aspirate before you inject and be very confident that you're not in the vein or artery because that that is a complication that you don't want to explore.
0: Absolutely. Now let's say you are discharging a patient who's going to need some pain control for a week or so. What are the agents that you use and any considerations that make you lean towards one or the other, or other things that you tell the patients in terms of anticipatory guidance?
1: This is an area of particular interest for me. I don't think collectively we do a great job of this. I think it's extremely important. A lot of our older adults who are in pain do go home, and I think sometimes we just give them some Vicodin and say, good luck. That may work okay in younger people, but I think it often has problems in older adults. So one of the things that I like to emphasize here is the approach which we call shared decision-making, which other people just call good medicine or good mm-hmm. doctoring, which, uh, and I think that's that's fair. But in short, I think you have a responsibility to educate the patient about their options. So sort of describe, okay, you could take Tylenol or NSAIDs or opioids. And if NSAIDs are not on the table for them, you don't need to go into that in detail. But I do think it's worth talking about, well, we could try Tylenol, but it's not a very strong analgesic. What about opioids? And then ask them what they think they want what their experience has been, if they are okay with taking an opioid, if they've taken one before, which one works better for them. Uh, Some patients do really well with Vicodin and can't tolerate oxycodone. Sometimes it's the other way around. Tramadol is also an option. That conversation, I think, has a lot of value. And then you also need to educate them about side effects, including falls, constipation you can prevent by either encouraging them to drink fluids and increasing their fiber intake, or prescribing something like Xenoplus, which is a combination medication. By having those conversations, I think you're setting yourself up, your patient up for success. Not having those conversations, I think you're sort of rolling the dice. The other thing to emphasize here is follow up. If they're fortunate, they'll quickly recover from whatever was causing their pain and they won't have any problems. If you see patients with an acute pain injury, let's say after a car accident, a third of those patients are gonna have persistent pain at six months. So a lot of those patients at a week will still be having pain, certainly. In those cases, it's unlikely that whatever plan you come up with in the emergency department is going to be perfect for that patient. And so I think getting the patient in to see the regular doctor in the next three to four days after an ED visit for acute musculoskeletal pain is good care. If they can't get in to see a doctor, then uh, calling them is also good care, although I realize the capacity and compensation for that care is uh, limited. But I do think getting them in to see a regular doctor within three or four days is good. In terms of options, a couple things to note. I am now sort of committed to not using NSAIDs in patients with fractures because of the problem of non-healing. Basically, there's, there's good animal data and some people data now showing that NSAIDs interfere with the healing process. Um, so I will generally, for patients with a fracture, I'll generally emphasize around the clock Tylenol, which is sort of the geriatric dogma, So 650 milligrams, three times a day of Tylenol, and then PRN opioid, I think that's reasonable. For patients who don't have fractures, then the following groups of patients I will consider NSAIDs in. So patients who have not had any history of GI bleeds or gastric pain or gastric ulcers, do not have congestive heart failure, do not have kidney problems, are not taking meds for diabetes, and have limited medications they're taking for hypertension. So now that limits it down to like about one patient you'll see (laughs) out of 100. For those patients who are really low risk, my mother comes to mind, she had considerable hip pain. She's had some problems with hip pain. She is over the age of 65. She does really well with PRN, ibuprofen, and I think that's okay in those low risk patients, but you still need to let them know about the risks and make sure that if they start developing stomach pain or black stools, they stop immediately and go see a doctor. The other thing to think about is that not all NSAIDs are created equal, and so Aleve is, appears to create less risk for cardiac problems than does Motrin, and so Aleve may be a, a good choice for older adults.
0: Are there any other adjuncts that you might use for specific types of pain?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So Neurontin is another medication which we haven't mentioned yet, which uh, the dosing is usually when you start people in the emergency department, you're going to give them 300 milligrams each evening, and then you'll after three days you go to 300 twice a day and then you go to 300 three times a day. And a lot of times to get the pain control you need, you're going to have to go up to about 1,200 milligrams a day. So it is a, you sort of ratchet up that dose as you go. The indications are neuropathic pains. People with diabetic leg pain, let's say, or post-herpetic neuralgia would be a classic indication for Neurontin. It is effective and it is also, it can work well in combination with other medications, including opioids.
0: And I'll put a link to an article in the show notes from the New England Journal of Medicine showing use of morphine and Neurontin or Gabapentin in combination can provide better pain control and potentially lower the needed dose of opioids. Those were some great tips. Are there any other things that you tell your patients? You mentioned follow-up and then management for potential constipation with opioids. Anything else that you tell patients on discharge?
1: Sure, there's a large literature about non-pharmacologic management of pain, and there are nice randomized trials recently published that show that things like cognitive behavioral therapy or sort of relaxation techniques can make a difference in terms of management of chronic pain. I don't usually go through breathing exercises with patients in the emergency department. And some patients, you'll sort of find like you've sort of run out of options. They're already sort of on maximal medical therapy and they're having a lot of pain. Then I think you really need to think about sort of the psycho-behavioral issues and see if you can address those things because you don't have a lot of other options and because they might make a big difference for the patient. The other thing that I try to emphasize with all patients with musculoskeletal pain is that uh, physical activity is a good thing. And even in people with knee osteoarthritis, in encouraging people, so older adults with osteoarthritis of the knee, you would think, well, it hurts every time they move. It turns out if you promote physical activity in those patients, they have better pain management. So. Physical activity has a lot of other health benefits, but even specifically in regard to pain management, most, most studies show that promoting physical activity improves pain outcomes. That's true for back pain as well. And so I try to emphasize that. I will sometimes talk about heat and ice, which can be used for symptom relief. It gives some, the patient something to do, it's safe. And so all those things I think are you know nice options. I will sometimes talk to patients about sleep. There's good evidence that patients with poor sleep are at greater risk for pain problems. If you feel like it's going to be a short-term pain, like they broke their wrist, but they're in a splint now and they're going to be fine in a few their pain should back off in a few days, fine. If they have axial pain, neck and back pain, it's more likely to be chronic. Then I think you need to start thinking more about the psychobehavioral issues and address those. And to the extent recognizing that we can't fully address all of those, issues in the emergency department that's again a reason to get the patient close follow up.
0: And I think in general we're pretty good at treating acute pain when somebody is with us in pain we treat that, but we're not as good necessarily at helping them get to where they need to go. So for example, somebody coming in with post concussive pain, that's somebody who maybe would benefit from a referral to a concussion clinic or physical medicine and rehab for these people who are coming in multiple times with chronic as you said, axial, neck and back pain, maybe we should go that extra step and place a referral if we have those outpatient resources. Anything else?
1: Uh, no, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but of course, you know, sometimes I think we usually tend to focus too much on the diagnosis and not enough on the pain. So I, as a teacher of emergency medicine, all the time I have residents come to me, and I say, what's the plan? And they say, X, Y, Z, and they're gonna, it's clear they're, they're hell bent on making the diagnosis but then there's no pain medications in the plan or in the orders. And so I find a lot of times I'm trying to reemphasize to young physicians the importance of treating pain. But then the flip side is also true is that when you have patients who come in with back pain or a leg pain, you also have to uh, be, be careful to make assumptions about what's causing the pain and make sure you think about the differential diagnosis.
0: Great, well, thanks so much. I'm going to end with a quick summary of some of the high points So first of all, if a patient presents to your ED, an older adult, it's important to manage their pain. They may not verbalize their pain as much, and we didn't really talk about assessing pain, but you can usually tell when somebody's in pain, even if they can't tell you specifically. If the pain is mild, you could consider Tylenol, usually PO, although there are IV formulations. If the pain is mild to moderate in a healthy older adult, you could also consider NSAIDs. Again, if the patient has some underlying renal failure or is on a lot of other medications that can have renal effects, then it may be best to avoid this. For patients with moderate to severe pain, then it is certainly appropriate to use opioids, keeping in mind that the patient may require a lower dose and that frequent monitoring and reassessment are very important. I frequently see residents appropriately giving lower doses, maybe 2 milligrams of morphine to an older patient. But then you have to really go back and reassess early on and see, okay, was two milligrams enough or do they need two more or or what else can I do to help their pain? If it's something that is amenable to regional anesthesia, such as a hip fracture or proximal femoral fracture, that is a great option in terms of reducing their overall opioid load as well as the complications associated with that. Other things that you can do topically are NSAID gel, like Voltaren gel. Those are typically for outpatient things like osteoarthritis of the knee, particularly is where a lot of work has been done on it. Things like lidocaine patches are great. I use them a lot for back pain, or I've had a lot of success with costochondritis pain for patients with it, and then also postherpetic neuralgia. On discharge, you need to have a good plan in place for the patient and make sure that they or their caregivers understand it. One option is scheduled Tylenol dosing and then PRN small doses of oxycodone. It's best to avoid combination medications like Percocet that has Tylenol and oxycodone or Vicodin or Norco because they may potentially overdose on the Tylenol portion if they're taking extra doses PRN or if they're taking Tylenol in addition, then they can start to get up close to the limit for what is safe for Tylenol. If you are prescribing opioids like oxycodone, it's important to also prescribe something to improve gut motility. Opioids tend to slow down gut motility, and medications like Colace or Miralax are good in terms of stool softening, but they are not actually good at improving gut motility. You need something like Senna for that to improve it. Other things you can consider other than just opioids are things like Neurontin, Gabapentin, which can have a synergistic effect and is particularly good for neuropathic pain. So hopefully this has been helpful and you've learned a few tips that you can take back. If nothing else, take back that it's important to treat pain in older adults. As always, you can find us online, gempodcast.com, and you can connect on Twitter at gempodcast is the handle. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.